If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to Romans chapter 5. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 5 in a bit. Uh, but We find ourselves living in a post-Christian world. For all the talk about God, um, God bless America, and things like that, the reality is this is no longer, if it ever was, a Christian world. And the questions come up, how did we get here? How did this happen? How did we get from a situation in which Christianity was the dominant religious faith and people lived their lives to some degree by it, and now it has been rejected? Many would point to the atheism of the 19th century. Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Sigmund Freud. And in our time, we have what are known as the celebrity atheists. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. Interestingly enough, also known as the four horsemen of atheism, taking the image from the book of Revelation. The question asked is, how did we get here? But I think the issue is, how are we supposed to respond? Better yet, how are we to speak the truth and to live out the gospel in our time? To those who point to atheism as the culprit, I would say, I think you're wrong. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you're wrong. Um, My thinking has been influenced here by the Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce, a philosopher of the 20th century. And he argued that the beginning of rationalism did not begin with atheism, that is a denial of God. Um, It was not a rejection of a belief in God, rather it was a rejection of the doctrine of original sin. By the time we get to the 19th century, where we have Marx and Darwin and all those, we find an age in which the dreams of human progress, both moral, spiritual and technological, have almost banished completely the notion of original sin from the scene. That's what I want to talk about today and in the weeks to come, the whole issue of original sin. What is original sin? Simply put, it is the belief that we are all born into the world as sinners. We find this in the Old Testament, Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is from Psalm 51, the great psalm of confession. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. And then in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. These verses tell us of the reality of original sin. But it is in our text today, in Romans chapter 5, that we find the how of original sin. I'm going to read verses 12 through 19 here in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was, is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. 
But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of the trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. That is, because we are the descendants of Adam, we are sinners. And by God's grace, we can be the children of God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Original sin is a cornerstone doctrine of of Scripture. It is a cornerstone of Christian belief. But I I want to be clear here, in case you didn't know this, the the term or the phrase original sin does not occur in the Bible. Um, We find the early theologians of the church using it, and we find it finally in um, Augustine. Uh, He used the Latin phrase peccatum originale, that is original sin. As we look at this in greater detail in the weeks to come, we will see that Paul tells us that we were present with Adam when he sinned. Therefore, we sinned as well. Augustine and the early church fathers thought that it was more of a uh, sort of a, a biologically transmitted thing, that because the father is a sinner, he biologically transmits this uh, to his children. Um, that is one way of looking at it, but I think looking at it, but that's, I think what Paul is telling us that when Adam sinned, we were there with Adam. We all sinned in Adam. I'm convinced that this doctrine is necessary for us to understand ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, the famous writer at the beginning of the 20th century, remarked that this is the only Christian doctrine which is empirically provable. And then the Canadian, uh, George Bernanos, wrote, for men, for men, it is certainly more grave, or at least more dangerous, to deny original sin than to deny God. It is almost as though it's to say, you deny God, no, that's not good, but you deny original sin, you're really in, on a slippery slope. When you look at all the different doctrines and theological positions of all the world religions, none... I'd say none of them generate more hostility than the doctrine of original sin. As one writer put it at the beginning of the 20th century, she was much opposed to it, it is impossible to argue with a person who holds the doctrine of original sin. Other writers have said it is repulsive and revolting, it is an insult to the dignity of humanity, an insult to the grace and loving kindness of God and humankind alike. And it is not simply unbelievers who have rejected original sin, the doctrine of original sin. We find it among people who call themselves Christian, major figures in the church. Charles Finney, a famous revivalist in the mid, early mid-19th century, 
referred to it as subversive of the gospel and repulsive to human intelligence. Just an aside, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but I, I find it really uh, perplexing that modern people take it as fact that a disease or a condition may be hereditary. That is, if the mother or the father, or they both have a particular condition and then the child is born and the child has a condition, we're like, well, yeah, it's, it's hereditary. What do you expect? But then when it comes to sin being passed from father to son or mother to daughter or whatever, people are like, this, how can you say such a terrible and repulsive and a repugnant thing? The very thought that sin may be or has been passed on is seen as so singularly offensive as to provoke such strong reactions. The first great controversy over original sin was between Augustine, uh, who was in northern Africa, and uh, a British theologian named Pelagius. And Augustine held to original sin, and in fact our prayer of confession today is written by Augustine of Hippo. Pelagius did not. In practical terms, Pelagius believed that perfect obedience was possible and therefore obligatory, that we could in fact be sinless. He argued that it is ridiculous for God to call us to do something when he knows in fact we are not capable of doing that. Augustine said, no, God calls us to do things we are not capable of doing on our own and so we look to him for grace that we might obey him. Augustine emphasized that we are utterly dependent upon God and his grace. That we are always, we will always be children, the children of God. Uh, Pelagius argued that we should never be content to be dependent upon God. We should not want to be dependent upon God. We want to come of age, and as was the custom in Roman society, at a certain point, a son is no longer obligated to obey his father. He is emancipated from the authority of his father. Pelagius had some very strange ideas. One of his disciples said, it is the easiest thing in the world to change our will by an act of the will. I don't know about you, but that's, certainly, that's not true about me. It is not easy for me to change my will by an act of the will. To Pelagius, what we just read in Romans chapter 5 has no effect upon us. That Adam was a bad example, so don't be like Adam, but that what he did ultimately did not affect us. He also believed that if you sinned, you could do a, a do-over, and uh, the fact that you had sinned and disobeyed God did not diminish your ability to obey God, which again I think is a very uh, strange idea. Uh, so that, okay, let's say I am tempted and I sin and the temptation comes again. Pelagius says, you're not more susceptible to that temptation. Uh, you have the freedom to reject it just as though you had never sinned at all. The Pelagian heresy, or as it is now known, the semi-Pelagian, because very few people want to go full bore on Pelagius, um, is still with us today. And yet I would say in the church we are not affected so much by theology as we are by the surrounding culture. The person that comes to mind is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. 
In his late 30s, he entered a contest that was sponsored by the uh, Académie des Dijon in France. And they were to write an essay, the contestants were to write an essay answering the question, has the development of the arts and sciences been morally beneficial to humanity? So art, social sciences, they've developed, has that helped humanity? And Rousseau wrote his essay and said, no, it absolutely has not. He said that the development of arts and sciences have corrupted us. They have alienated us from our original innocent condition. In other words, we were sinless until the arts and social sciences came along. And they have deprived us of the power to recapture that condition. We can't go back to being innocent anymore. He won first prize in 1750 and the work became wildly popular not everybody liked it including interestingly enough Voltaire Voltaire was not a big fan of Rousseau's what is probably his most famous work today Rousseau's work is the social contract and the first sentence of the book is man is born free but everywhere he is in chains his novel Emile is also well known And near the end of his life, he said of the book, this book is simply a treatise on the natural goodness of man, intended to show how vice and error are foreign to his constitution, invaded from outside and imperceptibly alter it. In the book, Emile, he said at one point, let us set down as an incontestable maxim that the first movements of nature are always right. There is no original perversity in the human heart. There is not a single vice to be found in it of which it cannot be said how or whence it entered. In other words, we are born perfect, we are born sinless, and somehow we get corrupted by all these outside things. So what we need to do is get rid of all these outside things, and in fact, we will go back to our original state of sinless perfection. This is not original with Rousseau. He's probably the best known Uh, But as one German philosopher put it, the concept of original sin is the common opponent against which all the different trends of the philosophy of the Enlightenment join forces. That is, as the Enlightenment emerges, the number one enemy, interestingly enough, is not God. God is not the enemy. Original sin is seen as the enemy. It is during this time that the concept of the noble savage emerges as Europeans come in contact with the Americas and other peoples, they come to be seen as without sin. The Europeans have been corrupted and contaminated, but this was the way God intended us to be. Uh, As one poet wrote near the end of the 1600s, I am as free as nature first made man, ere the base laws of servitude began, when wild in woods the noble savage ran. In other words, Back in the day, before all this stuff happened, we were sinless. Somehow we need to recapture that. The Europeans came in contact with other peoples that they saw as simple, naive, and guileless. And therefore they saw them as children. And since they saw children as without sin, they saw them as morally pure and innocent. And so both the noble savage and the child are seen as not having original sin, and therefore original sin does not exist as such. Corruption can come in from outside forces.
Sadly, the church was not immune to these influences. Uh, Charles Finney, whom I mentioned earlier, was an evangelist and later he became uh, the second president of Oberlin College, which is still there in Ohio. And he was known primarily for two things. He was passionately committed to ending slavery, the abolition of slavery, and he was passionate about rejecting the doctrine of original sin. And in his mind, those two things went together, the concept of slavery and original sin. I think there's one more thing he should be known for, and that is as a, as a person of the 19th century, he was a pragmatist and he was a true believer in technique. Um, those of you from different traditions may, may be familiar with the concept of the altar call or the invitation. Uh, Charles Finney invented that. Um, it, it became a technique whereby people could get saved, come forward, say a prayer and get saved. He was a man of technique and he wanted an immediate response. The idea that you had to think about these things and mourn over your sin. You know, let's get this done now. Very much a man of technique. He's a person of the 19th century in which people dream of human progress. In contrast to the biblical view, as we will see the Lord willing in the days to come, every generation participates in the fall of Adam. And in a real sense, until Jesus returns, human history will never be free of sin. That's the biblical position. In the 19th century, a different position emerges. And in a word, revolution. Not the American Revolution, and not even the French Revolution with all its atrocities. But rather, revolution is seen as a metaphysical transition to a higher state. Revolution is a way by which we get away from these bad ideas and we emerge in a state of freedom, a higher state of freedom. Freedom becomes what human beings aspire to. In contrast to this view is the biblical view. What one is called the universal democracy of sinners. We are all sinners. The 19th century pushes for revolution in which we break away from these things and we achieve a different state. But the beginning of this is not to reject belief in God. It's not atheism. It's to reject the idea of original sin. So the 20th century is supposed to be seen as a century of progress. But the history of the 20th century would seem to serve up a lot of proof that we are not making much progress. The revolutions around the globe have not brought human beings to a higher state of freedom. But at least one author has argued that no, no, no. We, we in fact have made great progress. That World War I, with all its unprecedented slaughter, devastation, and disinter in dis disintegrative effect upon the political and moral fabric of Europe actually seems to have strengthened the Western faith in the idea of inevitable human progress. Okay, we've hit a few bumps. We've lost some millions of people in the process, but we're still on this path toward progress. I would say, no, you, my friend, you are sadly mistaken. I do have a strong sense, here we are in the 21st century, but it was there in the 20th century, that belief in original sin is seen as standing in the way of progress. 
As long as you keep telling people they are sinners, they are not going to progress. I think those of us who believe in original sin, we would agree that sin, like certain diseases, transfers easily to other people. Uh, You ever notice if you lose your temper or get mad or whatever and sort of take it out on someone else, next thing you know, they're doing the same thing to somebody else. I mean, somehow this sinful behavior seems contagious. Um, But a disease is not, even if it is contagious, is not moral in character. Disease, we would argue, is something that happens to us. Sin is something we do. That's what we would say. And yet, that subtle distinction, I think, in fact, is wrong. An infant has not acted, and yet he or she has sin, has original sin. They have not acted. They have not sinned. And yet they are sinners. It sounds so unfair. It sounds so unjust. But if we go back to the analogy of disease or birth defects, the child has done nothing and yet is so afflicted. And so it is with sin. This is the human condition. But here comes the rub. Because many would argue that no, this is not the human condition. In the academy, in the university, in the humanities, some have argued that the only thing that we have in common is that we don't have anything in common. That naturally and inevitably, we don't have things in common. That's the humanities, the people who supposedly deal with human beings. Outside the humanities, in the academy, people are scoffing and laughing at them and saying, well, of course, I mean, look at biology. Of course we have things in common. Um, It is the humanities that want to deconstruct and somehow say, we're not really anything alike. And by the way, you can only do that if you've rejected original sin, the democracy of sin to say that we are all sinners. No, you reject that and say, no, we have nothing in common. Um, Yeah, the social scientists just say that's absurd. It's ridiculous. I don't want to belabor this point. But there's something here I want, to, I want to make clear, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, that there is a certain duality in human beings. We have the image of God. And in that way, we are precious. We are made in the image of God. But we are sinners by nature. We hear some of this in Hamlet. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Human beings are amazing. But then he goes on, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? We're great, and yet we are fallen. Francis Schaeffer used to say that human beings are gods in ruins. Something amazing about us and yet something very tragic in our sinfulness. The Lord willing, in the Sundays to come, we'll be looking further into the matter of original sin and the implications. Because a lot flows from this. And I think the church, sadly, has 
either weakened this or turned its back on it and therefore it has affected its theology and its presentation of the gospel. So what is human nature? Uh, Original sin is key there. The matter of indwelling sin. I am now a Christian and yet I still sin. What's that about? Dealing with indwelling sin. The nature of temptation. Is temptation something merely outside of myself or does it in fact have a collaborator within my own human heart? The presentation of the gospel. How do we present the gospel? Are we trying to persuade people to believe in God? Which I think in many ways appeals to their vanity, to their intellect. Yes, oh yes, I see now that makes sense. How wonderfully intricate is what the scripture says about God. Or do we speak about sin and their need of grace? I think above all, how we see original sin affects our view of grace. Is grace just this little push to get us going so we can get down the road on our own? It's something that God has so freely given us moment by moment. To set the stage for our study, we're going to look at five components, not today, in the weeks to come, that are required in a belief in original sin. If you are to believe in original sin, these are five things you must believe. First of all, that everyone is afflicted by original sin. That is this, this inclination to do wrong. We all have this. Secondly, it is hardwired into us. Okay, This wasn't a program that was downloaded unto us. This is who we are in our very being. We came into the world this way. There's no evading it. I've told people this before, and my nephew just received his PhD in engineering. Um, but I was amazed. Uh, they lived with me until uh, he was five years old. My nephew lied before he learned to speak. Before he could even speak a lie, he lied. It's like, how is that even possible? Well, it's hardwired into us. Thirdly, we must call these propensities sinful. Because even Darwin recognized that there's a certain violent tendency in human beings. But I don't think he would call them sinful. It's sort of survival of the fittest and you do what you have to do to survive. Number four, we were not originally this way. God did not make Adam and Eve with original sin. And lastly, The only way out of this is through supernatural intervention. We cannot, on our own, get rid of sin. We do not have this capacity. If we went out and lived in the jungle by ourselves, so we would not come in contact with any other human beings, uh, yeah, that wouldn't fix it. That wouldn't fix it. Years ago when I was speaking on Ephesians, Uh, and toward the end of it where he talks about putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the fiery darts of the devil Um, someone came up to me afterwards and said you know I'm not worried about the fiery darts of the devil I'm worried about the guy in the armor Yeah, Um, it's only God who can transform us by his grace and if we reject original sin I would argue we have to reject grace we have no need of it we can do it on our own
So I said at the beginning, we live in a time when I would say that most people reject the idea of original sin, and even many in the church. But if we fail to embrace what we find in Scripture here in Romans 5 and other places, then the message that we have for the world is not the gospel. It isn't good news. It's sort of a a self-help program, uh, something to help you get down the road, but it isn't good news. Because ultimately there's no bad news. If there's no original sin, then there's no bad news, and so you don't need good news. Pelagianism and all other beliefs that reject original sin is a creed for heroes, the heroic, those who can do it on their own, those who have gone to uh, Tony Robbins seminars and things like that. You can do it on your own. But Augustine's emphasis on sin and the consequent fact that we are dependent absolutely upon God gives hope to all. As one writer put it, it gives hope to the waverer, the backslider, the slacker. Another writer put it, we're all in the same boat with Mr. Holier Than Thou over there, saved only by grace. The same writer mentions a preacher uh, who encouraged his listeners to begin a prayer with the words, Lord, I am the failure that you always knew I would be. We are sinners. We were born sinners. If you would look at chapter 7 here in Romans, we just read from chapter 5, and I want to close by reading from chapter 7. Beginning at verse number 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I would not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. To which we would say Amen. Thanks be to God. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his gift that delivers us. But if we don't see that there's a problem, there's not a problem, then what Jesus did was, well, that's really nice. It's a a good example, uh, sacrificing himself for others. No, it is grace. It's pure grace. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at this further. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is somewhat overwhelming and confusing how so quickly 
the Christian influence in this world seems to have disappeared. And we want to point the finger at certain individuals. We want to point the finger at certain belief systems, at atheism, and say that's the culprit. When in reality it is a rejection of our human nature that we are marked, we are corrupted by original sin. And the only way out is by your grace. We are made in your image. And as such are of great value. Of such great value that Jesus died for us. But we are also deeply, deeply flawed by sin. Though we are your children, we have put our faith in Jesus. As Paul said, oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst of a war. We want to do good and we don't. We don't want to do evil, but we do. Sometimes we are shocked that this is the case. And I suspect it's because we have forgotten original sin. Our flawed condition. Help us to think on these things in the days to come and as we go through this study together. May it not merely be something that feeds our minds, but something that affects our behavior as well and our hearts. And may we be filled with gratitude at your infinite grace that has delivered us from sin and one day will bring us to live with you forever. I ask that as we go through the world in this coming week, we would have a special sense of your presence. Think on Tuesday of the Corys leaving for Zimbabwe. Give them safety. For Nia celebrating her second birthday. For all the things that this week will bring. May we look to you. And may we be filled with gratitude. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.